Meet me on the softer side. Meet me on the softer side. Softer side of your heart. Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. You can find out about this and all of our other author events at www.skylightbooks.com, where you can also browse our inventory as well as order books online. You can also follow us on Twitter or even be our friend at Facebook.com. If you'd like to talk to a real person, we can be reached at 323-660-1175. And don't forget, Skylight Books depends on listeners like you to help support us. So whether you're in our neighborhood or browsing online, buy a book or two to help ensure that we'll be around for a long, long time. Thanks and enjoy. Today, this afternoon, we are so thrilled to have Susan Patron with us this evening. As many of you know, she's been a mighty librarian here. Uh, she was a librarian here for 35 years before retiring in 2007. So we'll just need to give her another round of applause for that because... Because librarians rule, as we all know. Um, but what we're thrilled about this evening is that she's launching her latest lucky book, Lucky for Good, uh, which uh, School Library Journal said was a terrific read and a lovely completion to the trilogy. And Publishers Weekly said, the biggest treat is ever hopeful Lucky who ends her adventures on a high note. And I don't know about you guys, but I know that I fell in love with Lucky the first time that I uh, read The Higher Power of Lucky, uh, which she won the 2007 Newbery Award for. <laughs> And I actually got to see her. I was at that dinner. Yeah, so, uh, so it was very exciting. She gave a great speech, just so you know. Um, so uh, before we get started with Susan, I'm just going to have Pearl from uh, the Los Feliz Library say a few words, but, um, but just once again can't even express how excited we are to have Susan Patron here. Hello. Oh, there we go. Um, I'm Pearl Yonazawa. I am lucky enough to be the manager of the Los Feliz branch of the Los Angeles Public Library, which is in this neighborhood, uh, the next large intersection over on Hillhurst. Um, Susan had asked me to welcome all of her current and former colleagues of the Los Angeles Public Library. Raise your hand. I know there's many of you out there. Hey. And of course, from other library systems. I know there's yeah. at least one here. Oh, Hands for that. Many, many, many here. Yeah. Yeah. And school librarians. Um, I don't want to take a, a lot of time because I, we're all here to hear Susan. But I am asked all the time from people, you know, bookstores, libraries, aren't we in competition? And I always tell them, no, I carry two cards. I carry my Los Angeles Public Library card, and I carry my independent bookstore card. Yes. And these two cards, and authors, we are the best symbiotic relationship, I think, that exists. So with that, I will introduce Susan and let her do her thing. Thank I'm going to hand you, off. Pearl. Thank you. Thank you, Cecil. Thank you all so much for coming. And I'm sorry that some, there's standing room only for some of you. It won't be very long. I've already been asked, how long is it going to be? <laughs> <laughs> so um, I can assure you, it 
won't be too long. The thing that I have to be able to do here is read this and advance the slides. Shall I, shall I move the table or should we move this? This is kind of heavy. Um. Can you reach it from there? Maybe move this forward. Done this before. Sorry. Okay, I think this will work. Um, and can you all hear? Yes. So welcome. Um, all of you, um, I want to especially welcome my sister Patricia, who came from Seattle to be here today. Give a wave. And I think um, my nephew Edouard is here, is he? He is. He's waving back there. <laughs> and um, I have to do this, the shyest man in the room, my husband Renee. <laughs> No, that is not Renee. Oh, he's hiding behind this case. So, but he is here. Um, so it's really bittersweet to leave Hard Pan. I've been living in it uh, in my mind with its characters for about 16 years now, counting the dozen or so years it took to write The Higher Power of Lucky, um, which I did not know would be the first book in a trilogy. And I did not know I would be living in Hard Pan all this time. But I realized recently um, <clears throat> that I'm drawn to things in threes. Now I should ask, can everybody see the screen? Okay, oh, wonderful. Because it would be so hard if you couldn't <laughs> to fix it. Um, I think I'm drawn to things in threes partly because uh, of being one of three sisters. I'm the one that's standing. Um, and here I'm the one in the, in the red jacket. I wrote about this period of my life in maybe yes, maybe no, maybe maybe. With this book, I found out that I was writing in order to discover what I wanted to say. This seems to be a story about a storyteller's fear of losing or running out of stories, of becoming creatively bankrupt. And I, I still have this fear. More evidence of liking things in threes. A trilogy of picture books, the Billy Q trilogy, now out of print, published in the 90s. I grew up in Hollywood. Renee and I actually had our first dates right here when it was called Chatterton's and right next door at the Los Feliz Theater. So this is very old territory. Way back, I saved every report card. This is a sampling from the collection. Um, I attended Van Ness Avenue Elementary School, LeConte Junior High, and I have been known to sing the LeConte Junior High um, anthem. I still remember it. Um, and Hollywood High School. I saved a lot of ephemera, sort of intent on documenting my own life from childhood. I thought this stuff would come in handy when I grew up and became a writer, and some of it actually has. This um, self-portrait is from high school, and it shows the extreme suffering of a, of a writer and, a, and, an, and an artist. Oh, you can't see it very well. I should have blown it up more. But the, um, 
the self-portrait, not me, but the self-portrait shows a, a truly suffering artist. Um, I was writing lots and lots of derivative poetry. Uh, I probably should never write a young adult no novel. And I, I just want to tell you that it's entirely all right to laugh when you see the next slide. <laughs> In college, where as you can see I was studying English literature, I became a great fan of the actor Jean-Paul Belmondo. And this is me standing in front of a poster of him from, I think it's the movie Breathless. And this is my husband, Rene, about a year before we married. <laughs> I agree with that. <laughs> so um, each book in the Hardpan trilogy is dedicated to him. And he provided nearly all the funny lines in these books, and he only charged me $10 a piece. <laughs> he was very influential in my decision to become a librarian. He said, the night about, about this time, he said the nicest people he'd met since coming to America were librarians. I knew I wanted to write books, but I also needed to support myself in a way that would be meaningful. So I wanted to write a novel, but didn't know what to write about. My life thus far didn't seem to have the substance or gravity needed for such a big project. So this is a model of a ship built by French prisoner of, prisoners of war during the Napoleonic Wars. You can see this model and many other models built, built by those same prisoners of war at the Oxnard Maritime Museum, which I highly recommend. The POWs were confined to the hellish holds of British ships. They had nothing. So they saved the bones from their rations, meat and fish bones. They made art out of these scraps that they accumulated, recreating ships from memory. This is what novelists do. Using whatever material we have, using memory and imagination, or make, making up lies. And it takes courage because of the shocking horror of the first draft <laughs> that proves one should have been a bus driver or a computer programmer. And the second draft that proves no creative talent whatsoever. So I find these exquisite models to be incredibly inspiring. It's, it's hard to see from, from the photograph, but they are very beautiful. Um, this is the girl, the one that's standing up. The other one's Pat. But this, the, the girl standing up is the one I'm writing for. The one with the bad hairdo and mismatched clothes who still lives inside me. She's the one I picture as, I, as my reader when I'm trying to make a scene convincing. You have to write whatever book it is that wants to be written, Man Madeline Lingle said, the author of A Wrinkle in Time. And then, she said, if it's going to be too difficult for grown-ups, you write it for children. I knew I wanted the setting for my novel to be the high desert of the Eastern Sierra and started accumulating bones from my rations. Images of shacks, old buildings and vehicles, studying the ground, ants and a stink bug, okay, sage hens 
a red racer snake, a tarantula, um, a lizard. There's a lot of stuff going on by the ground in the desert. And I'm thinking my character will be fascinated by the idea of evolution of species. Fascinated by adaptations animals and plants make to survive and thrive in this environment. Lucky will idolize Charles Darwin. She longs to connect with him. In Lucky for Good, she asks Miles' mother Justine if she will get to meet Darwin in heaven one day. Lucky considered meeting Charles Darwin as a huge bonus in terms of being dead. <laughs> there were two things she longed and longed and longed to talk with him about if she were to meet him in heaven. One was the death of his daughter, Annie, at the age of 10. Lucky wanted Charles Darwin to know how sad she felt about that and how she planned to name her own daughter, Annie Darwin. And she also wanted to tell him about certain coincidences, such as how she and Charles had both been eight when their mothers died, and that Charles was born on the exact same day and year as Abraham Lincoln, for whom her friend Lincoln was named. Lucky found these to be extraordinary coincidences and proof of some kind of spiritual connection between them. That's from Lucky for Good. John Muir wrote, when we try to pick out anything by itself, we find it hitched to everything else in the universe. I was writing that scene and thinking of connection in this cabin reconstructed from a shack. Annie Dillard says in The Writing Life, appealing workplaces are to be avoided. One wants a room with no view, so imagination can meet memory in the dark. Well, this workplace is appealing to me, though the view isn't much because it can and, and it's it's appealing to me because it contains no distractions. I write the entire first draft in longhand. There's no internet, no phone, no TV. Writing for me starts with staring out the window. So this is the view. <laughs> And later in Los Angeles, when transferring that first pencil draft into a Word document, this picture of the window is my screensaver. So I can still stare out the window. <laughs> David Eulen of the LA Times wrote an essay called The Lost Art of Reading, Reading and the Act of Contemplation, he says. Perhaps the only act in which we allow ourselves to merge with the consciousness of another human being. We possess the books we read, animating the waiting stillness of their language, but they possess us also, filling us with thoughts and observations, asking us to make them part of ourselves. I love that essay. The characters began to emerge. Much later I realized that I'd again used a cast of three kids. Lucky is the one in the middle, like me. The Higher Power of Lucky was published in November 2006. Two months later, I got a phone call at 6 a.m. as I was making a sandwich to take to work for lunch. The caller said I'd won the Newbery Award. Everything changed immediately and dramatically. The retirement I'd planned for July got moved up to March. Eva Cox, who's here and wave your hand. <laughs> did much of the planning for a magnificent party, including this cake, this wonderful cake. Couldn't bear to cut it. 
for the next two years, and I put all these pictures together to give you an idea of how crazy, busy, you know, just mad it was. I gave lots of speeches, traveled around to connect with kids in schools and bookstores and libraries. I spoke to writers, to grad students at UCLA, to librarians and media specialists. Many online, I, I learned how to do a page, um, page shot. <laughs> I just love that. Ooh, I can do another page shot. So, um, Many online interviews talking endlessly about why knowing the word scrotum is not harmful to kids. <laughs> books on tape, listening library recorded each of the hard pan books. Cassandra Campbell, the extraordinary narrator, is here with a pillow on her stomach to muffle stomach noises, <laughs> and director Dan Musselman. And Cassandra Campbell, wave. <laughs> Cassandra has the most fabulous way of narrating a book. She gets out of the way. So the story, she, she's the conduit for the story, and she has a very beautiful voice, and I'm so privileged to have these three books with her. And Dan Musselman is here, too, right here. <laughs> Director of all those three productions, and that was just a highlight to, to work with those two. Um, Editions were published in a dozen languages. The Higher Power of Lucky was optioned for a motion picture. S still not made, but <laughs> this was a delirious, wonderful, complicated year. And I complained to Renee about being overwhelmed. Congratulations, he said. You just won the Newberry Weiner Award of 2007. <laughs> <laughs> said consolingly he said um, don't worry you're the new berry now but in a few months you'll be the old berry <laughs> ten dollars each time <laughs> and I had a deadline to finish lucky breaks I wanted a story with some moral ambiguity characters with both good and evil in their hearts like us and of course writing is rewriting writing is revision that is that's what it is, and it, I do at least six complete versions before my editor gets it. There was a lot of research for Lucky Breaks. I attended the International Guild of Knot Tires annual conference. The founder and past president of the Pacific Americas branch, Lindsay Philpot, continued to help me with knotty questions and to read every word in the, in the manuscripts that involved knot tying. Lindsay made a model of Lincoln's project, a hammock, sending me photos and explanations. This hammock was pivotal to the plot of Lucky Breaks, and I am very grateful to Lindsay for his nodding expertise, an expertise that Lincoln's character benefited from in all three books. And Lindsay is here tonight, too. And wave. This is the greatest. <laughs> This is the greatest knot tire in North America, wow. right here. It's true. So the minute I finished Lucky Breaks, I knew there had to be a third and final book, a denouement for the story of Hardpan. Fittingly, 
The word denouement itself comes from the French and literally means untying a knot. I was back to staring out the window. And thinking a lot about religion and Charles Darwin. There's a New Yorker cartoon where God is sitting on a throne reading his Bible on a cloud with a thought bubble that says, oh shoot, how could I have forgotten to tell them about the dinosaurs? <laughs> Justine, who is Miles' mother, is back in hardpan, having finished her prison sentence where she became a fundamentalist Christian. Like the French prisoners of war, she makes things out of materials that other people discard. Here is a stand made out of a coat hanger so she can prop up her Bible while making Miles' sandwiches. So when novelists talk about research, this is kind of, this is one of, one aspect. I had to make the thing that Justine made in order to describe on the page how she did that. And it really works very nicely. <laughs> I envisioned a new character who, to his own surprise, turns out to be descended from French ancestors. And I did that by describing our great nephew, Vincent. Without having seen his photograph, illustrator Aaron McGuire got him just right. Here is Lucky's reaction to him. He had that junior high way of seeming like he was just too cool to smile. <laughs> Vincent has no idea that he's in this book. <laughs> Aaron McGuire was chosen to illustrate the paperback covers for all three books and to do the interior art for Lucky F for Good. This was a decision made at Simon & Schuster. I loved Matt Phelan's tender and evocative work in the first two books, and I also love the dynamics and energy in Aaron McGuire's art. I hope you do too. So I'm back to listening to found object wind chimes and staring out the window, thinking of something Maurice Sendak said, which I believe strongly. He said, children are willing to deal with many dubious subjects that parents think they shouldn't know about. Children are small, courageous people who deal every day with a multitude of problems, just as adults do. What they yearn for most is a bit of truth somewhere. Thank you. Thank you. This room is filled with spectacular writers as well. It's just overwhelming to see all of you here. Um, we can do questions if you'd like. Um, that was only about 20 minutes. <laughs> yes. And <laughs> well, I have been. I have had the honor of being banned. Um, thank you. Um, I, I don't know. 
I think, as Lucky says to, to Justine in the book, we actually, we study evolution in school. It's in the textbooks. And so she's, she's kind of curious, but it's, it's a point of view. I hope you'll, you know, when you look at, Lucky for Good, I, I really struggled with many questions. And, and I hope that Justine is a very um, full, rounded human being. She's a magnificent artist. I want books that will make children start to think about um, absolutes and how the world does not exist in absolutes, that there are shades of all different colors in the spectrum, and there isn't a right and wrong uh, many times. So I address that in this book. Maybe that'll get it banned, I don't know. <laughs> Nancy. Uh, for those of us that read the galley, um, yeah. and you mentioned um, several months back that there were going to be some changes into the final, mm -hmm. can you give us a sense about what those might be? Oh. Read the real Nancy Rich said that she read this in a, in a bound galley, and um, how, what changes are there in the final version? I have no idea. <laughs> I mean, it feels to me that there are major changes that um, I. Um, was very anxious would get into this book, but I can't. You, it's too intense at the time, <laughs> so you'll have to read it. <laughs> Thank you, Marianne Wallace, marvelous illustrator. You, you're familiar because you you spent so much time in the desert area of the Eastern Sierra, but. Because it was a character of, of your lucky books, was it like, did you just rely on the sense you had from living there or vacationing or spending time there? Or did you actually like renew that connection and like walk around the desert? I know you took photographs of various elements of it, but, but what about the overall character of the desert? Because it was so, it felt so real. So did you did you go out? Did you like take walks? Did you smell the smells again? Did you sort of kind of reconnect, or did you rely on? on oh, the time oh, I think a combination. And I used um, I, I take tons of pictures and I refer to them a lot, but um, I spend as much time as we can out there. And um, the best writing that I do is always taking place there. I try to make LA for revisions and the original first, you know, bad draft, but the first, you know, creative part um, to happen there, if possible. Leslie. Are any of the characters based loosely or in part on any people you actually encountered when you were up Oh, probably, yes. <laughs> There's some eccentric people. And um, I can say that um, Brigitte has Renee's feet. But that's the only that's the only similarity between them. Does he give you ten dollars for saying that? <laughs> I probably get something worse. Um, any other questions? You have indoor plumbing. We do have indoor plumbing. Yeah, Eva. For all those fans, are you ever going to go back? Oh, thank you. Um, I, th I think not. 
Um, I got an email on my website from a woman who asked me if I would write an adult book with Brigitte as the main character and tell the whole story again, but from her point of view, and start in France and then bring her over here and, you know, Lucky's a character in there but not the main character. And I actually found that very tempting. <laughs> I thought, great, I can spend another 20 years in, in hardpan. <laughs> Sandy? Can you talk about what else is coming up I can. Um, I, I actually didn't have to go that far from Hardpan, which is a fictional town. But about 200 miles from where I think it would be in the Eastern Sierra um, is the real town of Bodie, which is a, California's official ghost town. And a fabulous place to visit. A very, very fascinating. And it... Um, the Eastern Sierra had its gold rush after the big gold rush of 49 that was in the Western Sierra. So this was in 1880. And um, huge amounts of gold were found in the hills surrounding Bodie. And thousands of people came there. And so I wrote a, a story for Scholastic's Dear America series. Um, and so it's 130 years ago, and it's Bodie, California, and it's a girl who's about 14, and she's, who is 14, and who's growing up with the most famous um, lawyer of the time, a real person whose name was Patrick Reddy. And he was so famous because he never, he was a lawyer who never lost a case. And he defended the worst criminals of the time. And... Um, so he didn't have any children, but it was very fun inventing this character for him. And in, at the time, there were many ways of wearing masks. There were the highway men who robbed stages all the time, and they wore masks. The um, the people in Bodie and other ghost other ghost towns, other gold rush towns loved to celebrate the Fourth of July, and they really did a big number with it. And they had all night, all day. Um, celebrations and dances that went on until dawn and they wore masks. Um, people made death masks and I owe this to Pat, my sister, who told me about these Victorian death masks that were extremely lifelike. They had a technique that you could just see every, you know, every bit of the, the face and they preserved their dead um, on the wall often with a death mask. And they, so I had this theme of masks coming up over and over again and so the book is called Behind the Masks. I just peeked behind them and saw the secrets going on in Bodhi and that'll be coming out in um, January. <laughs> oh, it's the publisher's Scholastic. Yes? You said um, that you tackle kind of big subjects. Um, and I read uh, The Higher Power of Lucky. Thank you. My daughter, mm. when we first discovered it. And um, like you talk about alcoholism and mm -hmm. parent not being there and a parent in jail. And so I'm wondering, how do you decide what to say and what not to say. Like, what's the mm. that you go by considering that it's for children? Because I found that it was, it, we, she asked questions, and I had mm -hmm. to explain things, and mm -hmm. I had to think about what to say and what not to say. <laughs> it's like, who is this author bringing up all these subjects? And how old were you at the time? Probably eight. Eight, uh-huh. 
are you sure you want to read this? Ah, and that is lovely. She she really did want to read it, and her mom was saying um, when she was reading the book. Uh, how did I decide what kinds of subjects would be appropriate or not appropriate, and you know how did I decide what to put in that book? And I, you know, I think I looked around at what kids see, which I think you know Sindek is saying is we kind of put on these blinders and think. Um, Kids aren't really noticing all this bad stuff that's going on, but it's in their living rooms, it's on TV all the time, it's on the news, and they're right in the same world we're in. So I figure um, n not to talk about things that are in the world is kind of dishonest, and, and I want, I trust them. I trust children, I trust their parents to, to do what you did so beautifully, and to be able to handle this kind of stuff as much as they can anyway because I think what kids will do if it's too hard for them or scary or wrong at the moment they go over it they don't they skip the page or they put the book down and they go to something else that works better for them I think librarians know this they just they sort of self-select and they're pretty good at it and if if they um, you know, if they do keep with it, it's because they want some answers. They want to find out some stuff. I always wanted to find out stuff. You know, and I always felt like nobody was telling me. It's a Pat. Pat gave me all my information. <laughs> Lindsay? <laughs> well done. Still being a child at heart, I'm intrigued by Brigitte's menu. Her what? Delving any more into the menu of food that she produces. Oh. <laughs> Appreciate cookbook. <laughs> A spin-off. Um. <laughs> I, was, I was trying to think of things that she would cook that wouldn't be too expensive or too shishi or too, but also traditional and French. And I couldn't spend too much time on that because I don't think that's a major point of interest for kids when they're reading. But I, I think a lot of adults kind of relate to it. <laughs> <laughs> if you do the Brigitte book, then you can do <laughs> Yes, <laughs> yes, if I do that adult Brigitte book. Yes, that would be good. That's a really great idea. Well, thank you, Martha. Wow. <laughs> okay, well, I don't want to keep you if... Oh, one more. Yes, oh, yes. Like, what time did you um, start, like, like writing the Lucky books where you, like, Lucky started, to, like, where you started developing the character in Lucky? Mm-hmm. How long did it take me to develop that character and write the book, you mean, itself? Well, I was working full-time. That's my excuse for taking about 12 years. <laughs> Longer than you've been living, right? <laughs> so, which is fairly daunting, but now I can write a book in about two, two and a half years. <laughs> Depending on deadlines and... Cassandra? What are you planning to write now? I'm researching something. I, I don't want to talk about it. <laughs> I mean, I really do want to talk about it, but I'm afraid to. So, um, stay tuned. Children's. Sandy? I know that you had two different editors from the, the first book. Three. Yeah, three different editors. A trilogy of editors. Of course. <laughs>
did you find, uh, was it difficult for you having Lucky's story in your mind to have to re kind of bring each new editor to it, or was uh, the manuscript enough to? She, she's asking about this, the potentially disastrous having three editors for three books in a trilogy because usually one editor will oversee the arc of that and um, it could have been terrible. It was fabulous because um, each one um, was very different and taught me a great deal. I mean, I learned a great deal in the process. I think each one helped me become a better writer um, and each one wanted to do the book which was, my fear was that somebody would inherit the orphan because the other, the first editor retired, the second editor was canned, and along with half the staff at Simon Schuster, I mean it wasn't her, she's now the head of Chronicle Books, she's fabulous, Jeannie So, but um, they let everybody go, and she was terrific, and then um, it's like, who, who's going to take on? I already had a contract for the third book. Who's going to take this on? I was very worried about that. But Caitlin DeLuey, who's just splendid, splendid editor, came forth and said, I've loved your books. I'd love to work with you. So it, it worked out. It was a stroke of luck. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can check out this and all of our other great podcasts at www.skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Fragile Gang. You can check them out at MySpace, Facebook, and the iTunes Music Store. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.